Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to our next panel session, Regulation Gets Real, Are Regulators Getting Serious About Digital Assets? I think they probably are, to be honest. Um, we've already heard from the previous panel mention of uh, FATF's travel rule, mention of MICA, um, mention about whether or not um, regulation is going to need more fragmentation in the market. And obviously, we're also seeing the SEC kind of hotting up its scrutiny of crypto asset companies. So we're going to have plenty to talk about. I'm really delighted to have Ian Taylor here from Crypto UK, uh, one of our partners on the event, but also um, very much active in collaboration and knowledge sharing on these topics. Um, on top of that, we've got an amazing panel um, covering law, policy, regulation, I think from both sides of the pond and also kind of a global perspective. So um, I don't think we could honestly have a better panel than we've got today. Obviously, I would say that since I helped to put it together, but I think it's a really superb group of people. Um, so really looking forward to hearing from all of you. And I'm now going to hand over to Ian without further ado to take this panel forward. So welcome, Ian. Thank you, Helen. I appreciate the, um, the introductions. Um, so welcome, everybody, to Coinscrum International's panel. Today, titled Regulation Gets Real, are regulators finally getting serious about digital assets? Regulatory uncertainty has long been one of the key barriers to wider adoption, as we heard in the previous panel. Slowing down innovation and increasing risk for some firms looking to scale. The bull market of 2020 coincided with increased scrutiny and attention from regulators in most jurisdictions. Will the EU, in particular, now clarify its petition, position and while the new U.S. administration has been making some bold new statements, how strict will President Biden's position on digital assets turn out to be? In this panel, we'll examine the latest regulatory trends in crypto and ask what companies need to be doing to remain compliant and stay one step ahead of the game. As your moderator today, my name is Ian Taylor. It's a pleasure to be um, invited to, to uh, moderate this illustrious panel. I am the executive director of Crypto UK. We're the UK's trade body advocating for fair and balanced policy within the UK and uh, more broadly um, in Europe and across the across the world. Um, without any further ado, let me bring in our panel. So firstly, if I could go to Charles and just ask everyone for um, a brief introduction, please. Thanks, Ian. Um, nice to be here among friends again today. I'm a I'm Charles Kerrigan. I'm a crypto lawyer. So my job is to make sure projects are compliant in the way that you describe. Thank you, Charles. And next over to Mary Beth, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mary Beth Buchanan. I am the Global Chief Legal Officer for Merkle Sciences and the President um, for the Americas. And we are a blockchain analytics tool that helps law enforcement um, trace cryptocurrency across blockchains. It helps companies, uh, crypto and traditional financial services uh, remain compliant with laws in whatever jurisdictions um, that they that they may be operating. I've also spent some time uh, as in-house counsel with a few crypto companies and been in the private practice of law representing coin developers and also um, various exchanges. Thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, Tina. Tina, would you introduce yourself, please? Perhaps on mute. 
I was on mute. Sorry about that. Thanks, Ian. I'm Tina Baker-Taylor, and I'm the Chief Policy Officer of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Uh, the Chamber is a regulatory advocacy and uh, association for blockchain and digital asset companies um, out of Washington, D.C., and uh, we are in the business of advocating for digital assets and the industry overall. Thank you, Tina. And our fourth panelist today, uh, Mark. Thanks very much, Ian. So Mark Tavener, Executive Director of INATBA, the International Association of Trusted Blockchain Applications, uh, like you, Ian. We advocate for the development of sound policy that fosters innovation. And I'm proud to say today I'm coming to you from Ljubljana in Slovenia, where the current European presidency is holding a blockchain week. And believe it or not, the government has just announced that they've launched NFTs. Interesting. Well, hopefully we'll dive into some of these um, new developments in this um, dynamic space, for want of uh, uh, a better description. So let's get straight into the questions. We got we got a lot to cover, and I think we can all agree we have a great pedigree on this panel today to discuss some of the issues we're seeing in the regulatory space. So so let's start with uh, discussing um, the clarity on what we've seen and what regulators mean when they refer to a crypto asset. How does perhaps some lack of clarity around the taxonomy and definitions create challenges for innovators? And let, let's direct this to Charles to kick us off, please. Oh, thanks, Ian. Um, so we, we all wrestle with the point that you described up front, this question around regulatory uncertainty. Um, and I'll have a go at uh, breaking down the uncertainty because I think regulators are clear on some things. And we can summarize those. So if I if I put the crypto regulation into two sentences, I think we can say, uh, don't issue securities to the public and don't facilitate financial crime. And those two things are both relatively conventional points and well understood. So um, one of the things that causes um, uh, concern and sometimes confusion around these questions is we don't have crypto specific regulation. Regulators are famously across the world prone to say that they are technology neutral. They don't regulate you differently depending on the type of technology that you use. And equally, uh, they're by and large working with the traditional financial regulations that have been around for quite some time now. So the difficulty comes from a new type of product, new types of assets, business models, markets, participants working and having their projects judged by the standards of the old rules. The uh, chair of the regulators in the UK, the FCA, I think posed a question to policymakers. He gave a, a speech, a presentation a couple of days ago. One of the points he said was, um, do we have the regulatory perimeter in the right in the right place? Is the distinction between security tokens and utility tokens correct? Because one satisfies the characteristics of a security and the other one doesn't. Or are they both types of investment that mean they should both be regulated in similar ways? Um, and I think that's where the uncertainty comes from. These are pretty fundamental questions. The fact that the chair of the regulator is posing them as questions tells us probably all we need to know 
about the the position that we're in. But as I said at the start, I think you know if you want guidelines for projects, there are some pretty clear guidelines from the old rules and what regulators are saying. Thanks, Charles. And perhaps I could uh, bring Tina into. Um suggest from your perspective and experience do you see the patchwork of regulations that exist um, as inhibited inhibiting innovation yeah so i think the question around clarity um if you're looking at other jurisdictions especially the us there is still a great need for clarity and we're starting to see that emerge um, more around issues like stable coins, custody, um, and again, kind of issues around um, not just necessarily what's a security and what's not, although in the US there, there still needs to be some clarity around that as well, but the continued um, desire from the, the industry to have regulators identify who, who is the regulator for a particular um, group of market participants is still a question in the US. Um, much like Europe, um, the US has states, like Europe has member states. And so there's also you know, state regulatory bodies that oversee certain activities as well as federal. So that does complicate things as well. Um, we're also seeing, you know, a number of um, enforcement actions being taken. And I think that that is causing some concern uh, amongst the industry market participants around the idea of regulating by enforcement, as opposed to providing some regulatory clarity about what the rules of the road are. And so, you know, from the chamber's perspective, we would like to see more clarity around um, not just securities, but a number of other areas which, you know, can and ultimately I think will prevent innovators from being able to develop with confidence, um, you know, prevent large institutions from entering the market and developing products and services because of the uncertainty. And I think that problem still exists. And just on this question, a, a final um, point to uh, Mary Beth, in your experience, both in the in, in the public sector and now in the private sector, you know, wh where do you see the the regulatory clarity inhibiting innovation? Sure, I definitely agree with the comments that have been made by both Charles and Tina. Um, we still have a lot of um, lack of clarity going on globally because every country obviously can make their own rules uh, with regard to the the sale and trading of, of digital assets. In the US, uh, most of the companies that have been involved in this space have been working with what we have available, which in, um, in this case means regulations that the SEC has come out with, guidance, and of course the Howey test, uh, which we've all been struggling to um, apply to determine when a token is considered a security or, or rather uh, an investment contract uh, or not. And I think that the cryptocurrency companies have become a little bit more comfortable with the uncertainty and, and they work with what they have in terms of the guidance that has been provided to try to determine whether certain tokens are securities uh, or commodities. But what we are seeing at Merkle Science is that with the traditional financial institutions, that want to come into the space um, because they're not 
necessarily here already. They're they're much less comfortable with the uncertainty. And so I think that we're going to see the entrance into the market of the traditional financial institutions to be a lot slower uh, in ad in adoption. And that's that's disappointing because in order to really expand this ecosystem, it would be good to have as many players um, in, in the space as possible. And this lack of clarity, I think, is preventing them from really coming in to this market in, in full force. Well, thank you. I think that sets the scene. Um, and then let's move on to the next question. Um, regulations on crypto as assets still vary greatly from country to country. How much does this still hold the industry back and will it ever be resolved? Perhaps I could turn this question to Mark. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Um, well, look, it, on behalf of our members, the, the overriding feedback I get, and there are some 170 of them now in uh, 36 different countries, is that the lack of uh, consistent regulation is definitely a consideration verging on a concern for them. And the reason for that's really quite simple. It's because you don't have any operational certainty. If what is a global market, perhaps one of the most global markets, blockchain tokenization, needs to consider how its services, how its products are both offered and received country by country when it's very hard to put up barriers and prevent those offerings from reaching country by country, it creates a huge amount of operational risk. And as a management team, you have to be aware of that. So the mere fact that there is a lack of consistent regulation and development of regulation at a global level, I think is a massive friction point. Now, I do just want to draw attention to a couple of policy developments regulatory developments at a European level, uh, in particular the market in crypto assets and the pilot regime, which is seeking to establish uh, consistent treatment of the approach towards crypto assets across the, the remaining 27 countries in Europe, which our members have largely been very favorable in their reception of. Now, granted, there are a couple of considerations there, you know, namely to do with how do you approach decentralized finance and decentralized autonomous organizations because there isn't a legal entity and the 50-year-old regulatory model calls for a legal entity to chase down in a punitive way when you eventually determine that some activity has not been in keeping with what you would like to see. So those fundamental challenges still exist and are present in MECAR and the pilot regime. But by and large, what we found here is a pretty well-educated regulator and most certainly a regulator that is open to engagement. And our members really welcome this. So as we look at the global stage, I think the bar is beginning to be set by certain geographies who are willing to learn, willing to engage, and willing to work in a collaborative way. And I think we might see a two or three speed global stage whereby those geographies where there is sound development of regulation, or at least a process to begin, the, the, the steps towards the development of sound regulation will probably see an inflood of talents, of innovators, and of the potential to create employment. And those that lag behind for whatever reason uh, may well do so at their cost. 
Thanks, Mark. And let, let's take this uh, <clears throat> different jurisdiction discussion a bit further and perhaps I could bring Tina in. When we see such intergovernmental agencies as IOSCO and the Financial Action Task Force issuing guidance, where do you see some issues around the different jurisdictions that are obviously issuing different regulations? Sure. Well, if we take a look at the Financial Action Task Force, I think that's a really good example of uh, regulatory guidance. Um, so, you know, it's a recommendation, but obviously they're, uh, the FATF member countries need to comply with those. Um, it creates a level playing field around a particular market activity, in this case, um, anti-money laundering and, and counter-terrorist financing best practices and requirements. Um, so that, I think, was one of the first, you know, we saw with AMLD5, anti-money laundering rules consistently applied to a region. FATF applies that globally. Um, what happens, though, from an implementation perspective, taking off the, the table um, the actual technical requirements to, to be compliant with some of FATF's recommendations, like the travel rule recommendation, for example, if we take that off the table and we just look at the application of implementing this guidance across, you know, member countries, um, not all countries implement at the same pace. And that is due to having to transpose that um, guidance potentially into new legislation. Um, the national regulator has to undertake the, uh, the structure of how they're going to oversee that activity and enforce that activity. And if we look at that as, as a good example, the travel rule, we've started to see what the industry is calling the sunrise issue in that different countries are, are becoming compliant at different times. And so you have this national or sorry, international, um, you know, movement of digital assets in and out of countries that may or may not be yet compliant with FATF requirements. And then what does that mean for the national regulators who are compliant working with countries that aren't yet and vice versa? So that creates some complexity around um, just general compliance and also create some complexity around continuing to issue further guidance um, if, if some of those countries are, are you know, lagging behind. And there's a number of reasons why that might be happening. So I think it's excellent to have some kind of consistency, especially when you're looking at specific market activities. Um, but when you look at it in practice, we're starting to see that the, that the complexities of having a number of national jurisdictions having to comply toward, you know, one um, regime has proved quite difficult. So we're all aware that the first regulatory clarity is around economic crime and illicit finance, which I don't think anybody would argue is the correct um, initial uh, perimeter to see. So was mentioned um, earlier, and to Mark, um, with the good work you do in Brussels and across uh, the Eurozone, so we've seen in Europe the fifth um, money anti-money laundering directive, which has opened up scope of European AML laws to include digital currencies. Can you speak to how your members and other firms are adjusting to comply with this new amendment? Yes, uh, Ian. So it's a program. It's a process which is underway, and. 
the the European Union is moving from um, a, a light touch recommendation, if you will, on anti-money laundering to a directive. Uh, and this is significant because what it means, uh, as Tina was just saying in, in relation to FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, is that previously on anti-money laundering, Europe produced a, a set of best practices, if you will, some guidance, which was then open to the interpretation of member state. Uh, at that point, there was 28, as we now know, there's only 27. Uh, and then the role of each member state was to, to take that guidance and to decide how it wished to implement it into their national laws. When you switch to the slightly more prescriptive form, um, what you find is that the anti-money laundering uh, approach in Europe no longer becomes a set of suggestions, but it becomes an immediate enactment in law. So as soon as it's passed and is ratified through Parliament, what will happen here, a little bit like Mika and a little bit like the pilot regime we were talking about earlier, is that it immediately becomes uh, enacted in law in all of the 27 member states. Now, that's good and bad because, as Tina said, that transposition can sometimes take a very long period of time. And particularly in a geography as complex as, for example, Europe, or uh, as Mary Beth will attest to, the US, where there is an aggregation of, of different bodies with different responsibilities. If you leave room for interpretation, that doesn't bring the clarity that the industry is looking for. It doesn't bring that certainty. So on the one hand, having that transposition period shortened by issuing a directive and having that directive enacted in law immediately that it's passed through parliament, in a sense is good because you get that clarity immediately. As long as the tool that's been developed <laughs> feels from an industry perspective as though it's supportive. And I think that's the double-edged sword. You know, it's almost the question in of be careful for what you wish because it just might come, right? So what, what we're doing on anti-money laundering, and this goes a long way towards what Tina has been talking about with the great work that's going on within FATF, is we're really trying to make sure that our members and in ATPA are engaged, are providing evidence, so that we strike the right balance between achieving that consumer and market support and protection, if you will, versus demonstrating the art of the possible from a technology perspective, from an innovation perspective, and not creating situations which just layer complexity and high cost on what is a very young industry. Thanks, Mark. Yes, be careful what you wish for, <laughs> folks. Um, so let me bring Charles in from the UK perspective because I know quite intimately the um, the, the situation in the UK. Um, just to sort of bring us bring the audience up to speed, the the FCA has transposed the EU AMLV five, commencing from the beginning of 2020, and we're now some 18, 20 months later, and we have only 10 firms that have been um, accepted into the new money laundering regime. Charles, you do a great amount of work in the community for many crypto asset firms in the UK and further. Uh, you know, where do you see this this happening and, and developing at the moment? Uh, yeah, well, it, it sure needs speeding up, doesn't it? It's um, something we can all agree on. Um, and it, it maybe illustrates one of the points that um, you and Mark were just discussing there. So that we've got be careful what you wish for, but also um, 
uh, think through what unintended consequences there may be of these things. What we uh, what we don't want to do is um, in an environment where we should be looking to promote innovation, actually have barriers to entry that mean it's only those firms that have um, uh, the, the, the deepest pockets, say, to pay for lawyers and compliance professionals in order to make their way through, uh, whether it's the detail of the application or whether it's, as you say, um, businesses that have only got so much runway, so much cash, and if you're burning cash waiting for a license application to be approved, that's a kind of existential problem for these businesses. So we're not going to promote innovation if we're not mindful of the wider environment, and we're not going to promote innovation if the only businesses that can come through are those that can afford to hang on for um uh, as you say, over a year, 18 months, because they've got um, the deepest pockets, perhaps relationships with the incumbents. Pr promoting innovation requires a level of understanding from the regulators. So we're patient. We're working our way through it. I think as as everyone on this call um, are working uh, together to encourage the regulator to get the level of resource to it. Um, encouraging the clients to understand where the regulator is coming from. So there's a fairly consistent theme from the regulator that um, senior money laundering reporting officers, senior people who are running these departments should have a background in financial services or be familiar um, at the very least with that role. It's not a role that you can just start from scratch because it happens to be open in the business. So there's something that we're all doing on both sides to ensure that uh, the participants are not at cross purposes, but but for sure, the regulator here, it needs to put the level of resource, the level of support in order to promote innovation, which we're all told is where government policy sits currently. OK, so we've spoken about Europe. Um, let's move to the US. Um, this is uh, international panel. The, the clues in the title. Um, so in, in the US, the SEC seems to be taking a much tougher stance. And there is also a divergence in policy on a state-by-state -state basis. How much of an impact does this tough US stance have on other jurisdictions? Or will it simply push crypto innovation outside the US shores? Uh, Tina, over to you first. Yeah, so we have seen um, a significant amount of uh, scrutiny and attention um, by you know multitude of US regulators over the last 12 months. I think we can expect to see more. Um, there's two, you know, schools of thought there. Um, you know, enforcement action is is always uncomfortable, um, but it is, you know, an important part of the regulator's role to provide, you know, market integrity, support market integrity, and and protect consumers. So um, some of the enforcement action that we're seeing, you know, has is being taken. Um, against firms that, you know, the project is, you know, some some years ago. And, you know, we're starting to see inquiries from, from agencies across the board into current market activities. So, you know, I think from a industry perspective, whilst it's uncomfortable, what it does tell us is that regulators and government um, do, crypto is top of mind. 
So, you know, we've, we've made it, right? We're, we're important enough to be concerned about now. And so I think that is an indication of the growth of the industry. I, I think also from a U.S. perspective, one thing to note is, you know, most crypto firms, you know, operating in the U.S. or certainly serving U.S. customers are already regulated by a number of, of firms and stable coins are already regulated by states. And so there's there's already quite a lot of regulatory treatment. Um, again, going back to the clarity uh, point, we, we are still looking for clarity on a number of things. And with that would hopefully come obviously less enforcement activity. Um, the new SEC chairman, uh, Gensler, has invited firms to come in and speak to the SEC about their plans and, and what they're undertaking. And I think that that raises a really interesting point around the education both ways. So whilst you know we are educating the government about what this technology does, the potential benefits, the risks that we identify, how we uh, mitigate those risks. We also um, are educating the industry around what the regulator is looking for and what good business practices, practices look like. So, you know, it's really a two-way street. Whether this um, continued scrutiny will, um, you know, drive businesses out of the U.S., you know, I don't, I don't think so, um, but there is the potential for businesses that are considering which jurisdiction to set up in. We, we know that digital assets is, you know, a decentralized business um, that market players can, you know, operate from kind of the four corners of the world. And if you have jurisdictions that do provide clarity from an operational risk standpoint and, you know, from a P&L standpoint, it, it does make sense to start to build your business where you understand the rules of the road um, and you understand you know, what the obligations are. So I, I agree with Mark that um, there is a potential for jurisdictions that are slower to kind of put that clarity in place, that there could be a knock-on effect of you know, firms choosing different jurisdictions um, and or, you know, talent migrating from, you know, our traditional kind of, you know, core innovation hubs in the world to, you know, different countries further afield where, you know, these new businesses are being set up in this, you know, kind of metaverse uh, economy that we're moving toward. And, and Mark, in the OT, the great, the great work you do in Europe, um, do you think a tough stance, whether whatever jurisdiction, US or, or coming out of Brussels or Asia, is there that danger that the lack of clarity fosters uncertainty? And we hear that when we talk to overseas firms wanting to invest in the UK, that that's an issue versus if it's if it's too overbearing, then you're definitely not going to get anybody coming and set up. You know, how, how do you square those two? <laughs> it's a great question. Ian. Um so when I talk to our members, you know, I, I guess they've got different views on, on this topic. Some call for, for more regulation and, and more clarity. And as I said earlier, be careful for what you wish, because then when it does come, uh, you get some that cry uh, that that isn't really the shape of what they were hoping for. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure there's a broad brush that we can yet apply to answer that question on behalf of the entire industry, because the industry is still 
so young, is finding its feet, has so many spheres of operation, is driven by so many different operators. Um, but I think what's really important to carve out here, and I just want to mention the concept of sandboxing, is uh, uh, an enough, enough space for innovation to happen in a visible way, in a transparent way, so that we can all go on a learning journey together. Because what's certain is that the private sector doesn't really know enough yet about the, how regulators think and how the regulators and the government strategists wish to try and provide protection for consumers and to support the, the market, if you will. And most certainly, regulators, legislators, government strategists don't understand what the art of the possible is from a technology perspective. I mean, I, I, I excuse my bad language, but hell, I'm not even sure that many of us do with the pace that things are moving at the moment. You know, do we all know what is the art of the possible from a technology perspective? Uh, you know, just this morning, I didn't think I would be sitting there listening to uh, a government announced that it was launching NFTs. I mean, just how quickly are things moving? So I think what's really important here, and this is what the, the feedback is, that is consistent, both from the public sector that we engage with and the private sector, is that learning together is really important. And I know that sounds a little corny, but I think the practical realization of that could be the establishment of sandboxes or test environments where applications, use cases, uh, business structures, whether they be novel like DAOs or more traditional, like uh, you know, f uh, legally identifiable organizations, can experiment together with the guidance of these regulators and test some of these hypotheses. Because at the moment, that's all we've got are, are a bunch of hypotheses. And then when the regulation comes, it's only at that point which is the very essence of your question, where the industry says, actually, when we look to apply that now, we're not sure we really liked it. We did ask for certainty, but once you give us certainty, we're not really sure we liked it because we didn't know what we were asking for and we didn't know what we didn't want. Thanks, Mark. Um, so we've got five minutes left. I'm going to ask one final question to the panelists and then bring in some of the audience questions. Thank you so much for that. So let's... Um, Let's talk about DeFi, decentralized finance, and how, how can DeFi innovate, um, or the innovation rather, be preserved while maintaining appropriate standards? For example, if Mika and FATF recommendations require decentralized projects to establish a legal entity if, if they're operating as a DAO. Let, let me um, ask um, Mary Beth first what, what your views are on, on this. Yeah, I think that DeFi certainly has a tremendous promise uh, to help, particularly those uh, who who don't have bank accounts and it's or in parts of the world where it's very difficult to access traditional finance. So, from that perspective, to be able to broaden the financial inclusiveness and reduce the cost and increase, um, you know, acceptance, it has tremendous potential. Uh, on the other hand, for those traditional financial services that have been providing, um, you know, financial uh, uh, guidance and um, access to lending have a lot of regulations that they've been complying with. And so there has to be a good balance between promoting the innovation and inclusiveness that DeFi offers, but also to, to address some of the traditional KYC AML issues. And that's the, the point at where 
technology, uh, you know, has not yet, um, we haven't figured out how we can, can do both. And, and so that's the challenge. Thank you. And perhaps the uh, same question to, to Charles in regards to innovating in DeFi. Yeah, it's going to take us a while to answer this question, isn't it? Uh, I'm glad we've only got four minutes left because we won't get through it. We need four years. Um, I think um, Mary Beth identifies the, the, the hardest problem from the regulator's perspective, from the, the policymaker's perspective, is financial crime. Um, so I think the projects are going to have to understand that that is a concern. And maybe this is the, the lawyer in me speaking, but it, it's a legitimate concern. Um, either these projects should not be seeking to facilitate financial crime. Um, well, if they are, they shouldn't exist. And if they're not, they shouldn't mind taking some action to support it. And we're dealing here in a world of transparent, immutable databases. So it's not beyond the possibility of technology and analytics and so on to, to help with this problem. But I, I think just um, the industry, there's some conventional response in the industry saying that they exist outside the um, historic legal system. That's just not helpful and, and not true. Mm -hmm. Thank you, uh, Charles. And let's... Um go to our panel questions. So going back to the SEC, um, the question is, they seem to be taking a more hardline approach. Is President Biden more anti-crypto than previous presidents? And will the SEC's approach drive innovation out of the US? Um, let's, let's ask either Mary Beth or Tina to have a stab at that. Yeah, I, I would say that um, I, I don't think that there's necessarily indication that President Biden is anti-crypto. The the SEC has been evolving in terms of its guidance on the definition of investment contract for some time. And they, they have tried to issue um, you know points on some of the easier cases. But what they're tackling now, I think, is, is some of the more difficult cases of what is an investment contract. Tina, I, I think, commented on this earlier, that companies who are already in the U.S. who have been working with these more vague um, definitions are, are used to dealing with the vagaries. Uh, but for companies that are outside of the U.S., they are still struggling with complying with their own new regulations that may have been implemented after the FATF guidance. So I think that it could potentially stem uh, newer entrants into the U.S. market. But for those that are already here, I think they will continue um, to work hard to, to try to figure it out. Thank you. And uh, the final question is on digital identity. Do the panelists think digital identity is going to become a bigger theme to help drive this space forward? Um, maybe Mark, do you want to have a stab at this one? Thanks, Ian. Short answer, yes. There's a huge amount of work going on around digital identity within our membership base in Europe at the moment. But I think um, there are other themes as well that are similar to identity that are going to be equally important. Uh, so privacy, 
that's that's going to be massively important. Smart contracts. Um, how are smart contracts buffering up against some of the established legal structures that exist, and and how do we imagine this brave new world of smart contracts? And then that brings us on to data. Um, smart contracts run on data. The intersection of blockchain and AI run on data. How do we create trust in this data and create um, or almost like a, a certification that the data is sound enough and trusted enough to have these smart contracts built on top of it? And then that goes to a final topic, which I'll extend from the question of digital identity, which is the code itself. Do we need a notarization process? that validates code. And is that really where regulation should perhaps be getting to? Is rather than looking at the behaviors, if we're taking the humans out of things because we're replacing them with code, is the role of the regulator then to create some sort of notarization process that validates the code that's being used, doesn't have any fatal flaws in it or, or malicious backdoors? I'll pause there in because I know we're short on time. Well, thank you, Mark. I think there's food for thought there. There's a lot for us to go away with and think about and a lot of work for the uh, the industry and the community to do along with policymakers. So all that remains is for me to thank our guests. Thank you very much. And to thank our hosts, Coin Scrum. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much, Ian. I think um, a number of key points were raised for me. Perhaps the most important one is that I think the industry itself still is learning the policy and policy advocacy process when it comes to really influencing what happens and being able to anticipate potential future regulatory changes and vice versa policymakers need much more crypto asset and cryptocurrency experience embedded in the policymaking world to really make that process more smooth because they are often chasing their tails to catch up with the technological changes that are going on um, and I love Mark's point about sandboxes and how we need to share more international best practice I think that's for me a key thing that I've taken away so thank you all very very much um, we're going to say goodbye to this panel now and thank them again and we'll see you shortly for our next panel on DeFi. <laughs>